a common passage, at least most of us have heard it many times, and that's the danger. Lord, help us to hear it as though we are hearing it for the first time. On one occasion, an expert in the law, a lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. Now, note, he wasn't being entirely sincere here. Maybe he wasn't sincere at all. He was trying Jesus. He was trying to uh, befuddle him. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We're talking eternal life here. We're talking about a very important question. In the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it? The man answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Couldn't get a better answer than that. Bingo. You've answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. This is the kind of love that you carry with you into eternity. The eternity where God's love is going to reign. This is the kind of love that, that belongs to God. Do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Okay, enter into this here. The man knew the concept. The man knew the concept very well. He, 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 had, the, he had the answer down. He knew what Jesus was looking for, and he gave them the, the right answer. But he didn't want to enflesh it. He didn't want to incarnate it. He didn't want to apply it to his life. You can know a whole lot of true stuff and not live it. Amen? And this man uh, was in this situation, so he wanted to justify himself. And so one way of justifying yourself, if you're a little bit above average intelligence, is to confuse issues. Well, you know, what after all? I mean, the concept is a good concept, and it's, it's, it's nice, it's insightful, it's good. It gives me goosebumps just thinking about the thing. But what after all is your neighbor? This is a complex question, and scholars debate this issue quite a bit. We have to parse Greek words and, and, and investigate the matter. And, you know, can you define it geographically, and can you find it temporally, and can you define it, you know, racially? I mean, who after all is your neighbor? When I figure that out, I'll get around to applying this concept. But right now, it's just sort of a confusing issue. So, Jesus, who after all is my neighbor? And Jesus' answer is so profound. Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho into the hands of robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him, and he went away, and they went away leaving him half dead. Now a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. He's talking to a Jewish man. This is a Jewish audience. A priest is a respectable, decent man in Jewish society, if ever there was one. This is a religious man, a respected man, a high and mighty man. He's got things to do. People depend on him. He's got problems he has to contend with. I mean, he's a man of responsibility. Here he sees this guy on the side of the road, beaten half dead. Well, it's just a little bit more convenient to walk on the other side of the road. I mean, he's got things to do. He just happens not to notice this guy. You see... You've got to walk on the other side of the road because if you give suffering a face, you feel all the more compelled to do something about it. If you want to justify yourself, it's important that you keep those who suffer faceless. Make them on the other side of the road where you don't have to deal with them. Maybe the guy even did it unconsciously. It's like, he's sort of, without thinking about it, happened to go over, he's on the wrong side of the road. But let's not condemn the guy. He's a decent guy. Uh, he probably had a prayer meeting to go to. I mean, who knows? So to a Levite, another respected man in Jewish society, when he came to the place and saw this man, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, now note, the Samaritan's out of town, he's from Samaria, he's traveling. These other folks are in their hometown, this is one of their own, they don't do anything. But the Samaritan is traveling, he's out of town. And you've got to know this, Samaritans were regarded by the Jewish people of this time as being lowlifes. 
The one thing worse than a Gentile, a Roman, was a Samaritan because the Samaritans were the, uh, the result of Jews uh, uh, marrying and having children with Gentiles. So they were seen as being half-breeds. They were prejudiced against. And the Jewish audience knows this. So Jesus says, this Samaritan, you're talking about a slave to a plantation, a plantation owner here. The Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds and pouring oil and poured on them oil and wine. Expensive stuff, but this guy spent it on this man who was wounded. And then he put the man on his own donkey. He would have to walk alongside of him probably. Took him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins, denarii. There are approximately uh, two days' wages here. Two days' wages. And he gave it to the innkeeper, and he said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any, any extra expenses that you may have. In other words, he gave him a blank check. Take care of this guy. And money's no object. Not that this guy was rich, but he says, you do what you have to do to meet this man's need, and I'll take care of it when I come back. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. Note here, Jesus turns the question around. Church, we've got to hear this. The man starts by asking, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus ends by asking the man, whose neighbor are you? It's not a question of who is your neighbor. It's a question of whose neighbor are you. And he tells the man, go and do likewise. In other words, to anyone who is in need, to anyone who is like this man who is beaten up, you are to be a neighbor. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, let your word land here as it is intended to land. Let it land and change us. Let it land and stir us up. Father, we cannot on our own will our hearts to change and become kingdom people. Your spirit has to tenderize us. Holy Spirit, tenderize us, soften us to receive what you have for us here. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Here's a question that I've been really asking myself a lot over Christmas. And the question is this. If it sounds like Mr. Rogers, whose neighbor am I? Whose neighbor am I? Am I, am I a good Samaritan? And I think to myself, gosh, you know, if I was walking down the road and I saw this guy beaten up half dead on the side of the road, I certainly wouldn't have stopped. I wouldn't have went to the other side. I'm a good guy. I'm a decent guy. But the priest was a good guy and a decent guy, and the Levite was a good guy and a decent guy. These are not evil people with horns sticking out of their head. They're good, decent people. But they happened not to notice. They chose not to notice what was on the other side of the road. In fact, they chose to go to the side of the road where they wouldn't have to notice this. And so the question that I ask myself is this. Are there areas in my life, and, and saints of God, if we're a people of love, we just have to ask this question. Um, Are there areas in my life where I am choosing not to notice? Am I walking on the other side of the road intentionally in some areas in my life, or maybe even unintentionally in some areas of my life, where it would inconvenience me, it would interrupt me, it would bother me, it would would cause some sacrifice on my part if I did notice the face of the person on the other side of the road? We've got to ask that question. In other words, am I walking in the kind of love that Jesus wants me to walk in? That's a good question. I don't know if you've ever seen this documentary called Shoah. Um, Shoah, I believe it's the Hebrew word for annihilation or destruction. And it was put together by this Jewish filmmaker 
It's a, a nine-hour documentary, and he wanted to get on tape as many survivors and participants in the Jewish Holocaust as he possibly could. So for years, he went around and interviewed these people. Before He wanted to get them on tape before they died so we'd have a permanent record of, of, the, the, of, of the Holocaust. And, and the testimonies of the survivors are breathtaking, but more breathtaking, or at least as breathtaking, are the testimonies of the participants in the Holocaust. He went around and he talked to just anyone who had any kind of contact with this attempt to exterminate the Jewish people. He talked to the guy who uh, was uh, driving the train uh, that, that had a, a trainload of, of Jews going to Auschwitz. And he talked to the guy who had to manage the trains and the guy who kept record of, uh, had to keep a register of where the Jews were and whatnot. And he, he talked to the people who sold the Jews some of their, uh, their garments before the war and then gave them their military or their prison garments after the war. And he talked to the guard who was in charge of of opening the door of Auschwitz as they went in. And he talked to um, just some townspeople who were there, who were friends of these Jews, but then all of a sudden saw them being taken away. And he always asked them this question. What was going through your mind? What were you thinking? What did you do about it? You know, wh where were you at when this was happening? What was your role when this was, was happening? And, and do you feel any moral responsibility for what was happening? Talked to a lot of different officials. Talked to the guard who was in charge of hauling out bodies after they'd gas them. And here's what is amazing about this. These people do not, do not have fangs dripping with blood. They're good people. I mean, even the guard, the guard who was in charge of uh, this, um, taking the Jews out, uh, the, 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 the dead uh, people out after they, they were gassed, he looked like somebody's grandpa. He would laugh and he'd just kind of talk. And, and all the townspeople, well, you know, they knew something was going on, but it really wasn't their responsibility. And the train guy, yeah, he knew they were de deporting people. And, and he suspected that maybe it wasn't going to go well for them. But he, he didn't want to ask any questions. Nobody wanted to ask any questions. Because if you ask questions, you might have to do something about it. You stay on the other side of the road because, you know, you got a job to do. You've you got kids to support. You've got a house payment to make. You've got a car to run. And, and it's not really your problem. I mean, somebody else is in charge of this whole thing. You're just doing your little role by not noticing. It takes a lot of priests and a lot of Levites, a lot of decent people who just don't care enough to do something about it to let something like that happen. They're all decent people, good people. They're just doing their job. I mean, life is tough and we all got our own problems. There were a couple who stood up and did some radical stuff like Ralph Wallenberg and, and Schindler who stood up and ended up paying a high price sometimes to do something about what was going on, but the majority, the vast, vast, vast majority of good, decent Levites and priests just kind of didn't notice, walked the other way. They got problems of their own, places to go, families to support. And the question I got to ask myself is this, is there in any way, do I, is it just beneficial for me not to notice, to be kind of part of the whole system of things? Are the ways in which I am a Levite and I am a priest and just don't notice? Am I benefiting by not noticing some things? Let me give you a graphic illustration of, of this question. This is, a, this is a, I think, a contemporary application of this Good Samaritan story. Let it land however it's supposed to land. I'm chewing on this. I'm giving you something to process here, okay? Here's the way I said it to my daughter the other night. If there was a person, a young girl, in my driveway starving to death, and I had enough money to keep that starving child alive for a day, maybe a week, maybe a month, 
But at the same time, I'm really tired of my curtains, and I'd like a, n- a new set of curtains. And I choose to spend the money that I could have spent keeping this child alive. I choose to spend it on curtains. I asked my daughter, am I in any way responsible when she dies? My daughter says, well, yeah, of course. I'd be mean. So I asked the question, and I'm asking the question, whose neighbor am I? I ask the question, what if this young girl is down at the edge of the street? And I don't have to see her all the time, but I do have to pass by. I'm helping her stay alive. And by the way, I'm, I'm using material things here because it's, it, it's, it, it's more poignant, okay? But, but I'm going to broaden it uh, quite a bit later on. But am I responsible then? I mean, uh, do I in any way contribute to her death by buying my curtains instead of feeding her? My daughter said yes. And so then I said, well, what if she's not even on our street? What if she's on a different block? What if she's downtown in the inner city? And I don't even have to see her, but I, I do know that she's there. Am I in any way morally responsible for her death? Um, am I, at the very least, am I showing love towards her by buying my curtains? And my daughter would say, well, you're not showing love to her. And I, I guess in some way, if you know about her and you know you could save her, but you buy curtains instead, you're sort of responsible. And then I asked the question to myself and to her, and this is just how I'm processing this story here. I asked the question, well, then what if she's in a different state? And what if she's in a different country? What if she's in Bangladesh or in Haiti? What if she is the kid that I saw this this last summer on top of a rubbish heap searching for food in a pile, the smell of which I couldn't take? Is my responsibility lessened in any way because of geographical distance? Is it lessened in any way because of national difference? And I don't see how anything in this parable or anything in common reason would tell us that the responsibility is really lessened. But you see, the issue here is this. I live and you live in a culture which systematically conditions us not to ask those kind of questions. Those kind of questions are scary questions. Those kind of questions, if you take them seriously, and I'm talking from experience, they're troubling, they're haunting, they're convicting. Um... They'll, they'll start screwing you up. But maybe we need to be a little screwed up here, folks. Amen? We've we got to ask, if we're a people of love, we've got to ask these questions. And I, we're in a culture that systematically conditions us, teaches us to not ask those questions. What we're taught is that, by golly, if I earned it, I deserve it, I should get it, and as much of cars I can get, I should get, and as much of fun I can get, I should get, and as big a house as I can get, I should get, and I, I deserve better clothes, and I deserve this, whatever, and it's me, 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 me. And to do that, we've got to walk on the other side of the road and not notice that there's a lot of other people, there's a lot of other things that love might have us do with our resources if we just would stay on the side of the road of the person who's suffering whether it's in our own country or whether it's in a different country or whether it's in our church or whether it's in a different church. We are called, I'm so impressed once again, with the radicalness of the gospel. It, it want, the Lord wants to overhaul our life, our priorities, our value systems. If we just, he does not want to be an addendum to our American dream. He wants to total, van, totally vanquish the American dream. Because what we're called to do is love, with a radical kind of love that unsafe people aren't even capable of. We're called to that. We're called to imitate Jesus Christ. Seven times in the New Testament, we're called to be we're imitators of Jesus Christ. The Greek word is the word, we get the word mind. Uh, 
mime from. We're called to mime Jesus Christ. We see him live, we live that way. As he moves, we move. His attitude is to be our attitude. And when you consider who Jesus Christ is, he's the one, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, who even though he was rich, it says in, in, in 2 Corinthians, though he was rich, yet he made himself poor. Though he was rich, he made himself poor for our sake. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who even though he was by very nature God, did not grab onto his divinity, but rather he emptied himself and made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a servant. What the word is saying there is that God was our neighbor. What the word is saying there is this, Jesus Christ, seeing our need, made our problem his problem. And he was willing to forsake the joy and the ecstasy and the peace and the, the love that belongs to God's own nature. He was willing to forsake it for us. He poured himself out for us. And then the Bible turns around and says, we are to live like that towards one another. We are to live like that towards one another. This is the most fundamental call of the gospel. We're the body of Christ. We're to act like Christ. We're to be mimes of Jesus Christ. When people look at us, they should see something of the heart of Jesus Christ, who, though he was by very nature God, emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. We're not called. We're, we're not called to be big. We're not called to be mass marketing Jesus. We're not called to have fancy church. We're not called to have high steeples. We're not called to have soft pews. We're not called to have great programs. If we have that, fine. If God blesses it, fine. But you know what? What we're called to do is love. And love is, by definition, sacrificial. It's got to grieve the Lord to the core of his being when he sees a church, not, I'm talking about the American church here, that is just so up with other things. We're to be followers of the Lord who said, if you don't give up all your possessions, you can't be my disciples. Luke 14, And I don't think that it means we should all be street people, but it does mean this. What we think we own, we do not own. Don't have any possessions. Don't cling to it. Everything that you have, everything that you earn, everything that belongs to you, all your gifts, all your aptitudes, and all your financial resources are there as a tool of love if, in fact, we understand what it is to be called to be a radical disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. I sometimes believe, I think, that the word that the Lord would pronounce to the church today, is, you know, I believe that every, with God, you always start with repentance. And maybe it's good we just start with a new year of just saying, Lord, search my heart and let us repent of anything that belongs to us in, 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 that the sermon might con confront. The Lord said to the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelations, chapter 3, verse 17, he says, you, I have something against you, you are rich and you are prosperous, and you think you need nothing. And the Lord came down on that and came against them. And I wonder how, what the Lord would say to the church today that gets so involved in, in, in stuff that does not matter, amount to a hill of beans, and we have a vision that is so narrow. So much of the church in America today, we just got to say it out loud, would say, the starving in other countries, they're not my problem. That's their government's problem. That's, you know, those kids are their government's problems. It's not my problem. 
And the violence in the inner city, that's not my problem. That's the city's problem, you know. And, and uh, you know, I didn't create that. I got problems of my own. And, and, the, and the, maybe the problems in the black community, that's not my problem. I'm white. And the problems in the city, that's not my problem. I'm a suburban, you know. And the problems with the poor, that's not my problem. I'm rich. And, and the problems with uh, being a, a single divorced parent, that's not my problem. I mean, you make your bed, you lay in it. You shouldn't have got divorced, by golly. And that's not my problem. And the person struggling with homosexuality and the person struggling with drugs and the pregnant teenager, that's not my problem. That's maybe the government's problem or maybe it's the church's problem and I give my 5 or 10% to the church and let the church take care of them. But I got problems of my own. What are the problems that so many American Christians think they have? Well, you look at what they do with their resources. That's how you tell what their problems are. It's the problems of upgrading your curtains. It's the problem of upgrading your car. It's the problem of finding bigger closet space because you got too much clothes. It's the problem of, you know, i, I, I got to get a job promotion, and I want the best for my kids, and i, I got to have this, and i got to have that, and i got my problems. i got to make house payments. I'm on the other side of the road. They're on that side of the road. I don't even notice that. Church of America today, their problems are, so much of it is, how can we mass market? How can we get better advertising? We like one of those little fancy, glossy photos of, you know, I bet that would draw more people in. And we need a better advertisement. You know, we really could upgrade the pew. da 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 And I'm not talking against any particular thing there, but I'm just saying, where's the heart orientation? Where's the worldview orientation? I think the Lord would say to us, you got the wrong set of problems. You got the wrong set of problems. Amen? Love would say, the Lord would say to us, amen, that if God made us his problem, we are to make each, other, each other's problem. Love says that. I don't know this guy on the side of the road. I'm even an out-of-towner, and this guy being a Jew isn't even going to like me if he wakes up from his cold and despises me. But love says his problem's my problems. And if you're white, the black problem is your problem, and if you're black, the white problem is your problem. And the body of Christ, love says we own each other's problems. And it also means this as God moves that i got to ask the question, what else could I be doing besides buying these curtains for the kid down in Haiti or kid in Bangladesh or wherever? you got to ask those kind, of a question, those kind of questions. Love makes that problem my problem. But you say, you say this, and here some of this is reasonable and some of it maybe is trying to justify ourselves. But it's like, well, Greg, you can't solve the world's problems. We can't solve the world's problems. That's true, you can't. But the Good Samaritan wasn't trying to curb the crime rate in Jericho. There's this one guy here in need, and he met that need. Can't solve the world's problems, but maybe this person over here can use your friendship, and this person over here could be helped out by you, and that person over in Taiwan could, could use some prayer, and this missionary could use some support one by one. And they, well, the problems are too big. There's too many. I, you know, you just can't. It's just overwhelming. If you start living like this, you go nuts. And I know that line of thinking. But see, the Lord, love is one-to-one. I mean, you can love masses of people, but it's always incarnated one-to-one. See the movie Schindler's List? Best movie ever made in history. It is just... You remember Schindler? Schindler was this man who bought about 6,000 Jews out of destruction uh, by putting together this phony business, and he hired them as workers and out of their concentration camps. And at the end of the war, uh, when the Jews were freed, they came and they thanked him, and they said, you've done so much. And Schindler began to cry. He goes, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. 
They said, oh, but you did so much. They said, but I could have done more. How can you put a price tag on a human life? He says, this watch. I could have bought three lives with this watch. If I just would have been on that same side of the road. And this tie class, but I need this tie class. This would have been a, a life. And these shoes, how many lives are these shoes worth? And this car, he turns to his car, how many lives could I have bought? If I didn't, wasn't, why didn't I sell the car? I could have bought more lives. It wasn't enough. And the question that the gospel, that this story would put right in my face is this. Who's paying a price for my curtains? This cuts right to the heart of the American dream. What else could I be doing with what I've got here? And I'm not just talking about material feeding of kids, though that's part of the gospel, I believe. I'm talking about just the kingdom of God stuff. The kingdom of God stuff. To ask this question, to hear this story, is to cut right to the core of the American dream. And I, You guys, we are called to live a lifestyle that is in radical contradiction to what this culture is about. And that's how they will know out there that it's for real. That's how they will know it's for real, by how we love. And how we love is most illustrated not in what we say, but in how we live towards one another. Let me just end with a couple of closing points. Number one, I'm not just talking about physical, as I said, but about spiritual stuff. Um, what are we doing to further the kingdom of God spiritually and physically around the globe and here in our church and here in St. Paul? Secondly is this. I don't believe, I, I don't want to heap a guilt on anybody for being blessed. I don't think it's a sin to be blessed. Nor do I think it's a sin to take a break, to have a vacation, to have some things that aren't absolutely necessary. Jesus changed the water into wine. It was a superfluous miracle, but he did it. There's other things he could have done with that miracle. The person who, who spent some uh, oil, spilled some oil on his feet, he said, you know, let her do it. The poor, you, you're not going to solve the problem of world poverty by giving up this vacation or spilling this oil. It's not being wealthy that's the problem. It's what you do with it. It's how you live with it. And know this, whether you are rich or whether you're just scraping by, none of us have anything. We don't own it if we're a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the question should not be, how much of it do we give? The question is, how much does the Lord want us to keep? A third thing is very important is this. Don't judge others. Um, I've known some people who have gotten this revelation. The, re the light goes on, and it's like, whoa! This is the essential part of the gospel. And they've hindered their ministry, in some cases totally undermined it, because they get judgmental towards other people. And they, they make some radical sacrifices, and then they look at disdain at people who don't make those same sacrifices. The Bible's clear that we're not to judge one another on this. Be in process on this. I'm in process on this. I, 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 it's hard to figure out and pray through and talk to your family about it. We're in process on it. We, no one's in a position to judge somebody else. But at the same time, the fourth point is to be in process on it. Be thinking about it. Don't forget. Don't forget to keep an eye out for what's on the other side of the road. There might be a side of you that says, well, this is an unfair analogy because unlike Shoah, we're not in war, and unlike with Schindler, we're not in war. I mean, they were in a state of emergency, so of course they should have thought those radical thoughts. But believer, never forget that we are in a state of war. Amen? We are at war. We are at war. Our culture makes us think we're in vacation, but we are at war. And in wartime, radical vice is the norm. We're called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. 
which means disciples of love, a love that will revolutionize us, and if we let it revolutionize others around us. And the question is, how would he have us to live? How would he have us to live? He would have us to live as the body of Christ, miming him, doing what he did. Pray with me here. Father, pray with me here if this is on your heart. Not, you don't have to pray out loud, but just make this your prayer. Father, forgive us for ways in which maybe, Lord, we have sold out to the American dream and, and this culture and its ideals. Father, forgive us for ways that we have not loved with your love. Father, forgive us for ways that we've maybe tried to justify ourselves by saying the issues were too complex. Father, forgive us for ways we try to justify ourselves by pointing to the token that we do give instead of listening to your word, which would have us radically alter our uh, life. Father, change our hearts. Move in this body of people right here and change our hearts, oh God. Free us from the addiction to things, Lord God. Free us, Lord God, from the addiction of things. Free us, Lord God, to be addicted to you and to be addicted to people, Lord God, and to live our life with your eyes and with your heart and to see all around us and even around us that we don't see, Lord God, to see your heart for people, to see your heart for hungry kids, to see your heart for starving spiritual souls, Lord God, and to be moved to do something about it, Lord. We are your body, Lord. We want you to change us. Throughout this year, Lord God, may, Lord God, remind us of this and make it our prayer. We pray, we pray in your name. Amen.